Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Vircola, and I'm here to help Paul do the big stories of the week. Talk about them, explore them in depth, well, and maybe have some fun. The stories as they've appeared at thiscommonsense.org. Paul is coming to you from Michigan, where he is working on a big project. And I'm here out in the Pacific Northwest with birds outside my window. I hope you don't hear them, but if you do, you'll survive. Meanwhile, the tripping sectaries of the left and the right in America are doing their usual thing, and we will talk about that today. Well, this is the last week of June and the first day of July, 2022, and you have five pieces. Well, you have four pieces. As I speak right now on Thursday, June 30th, we haven't finalized the final piece for Friday. Yes, but we're taking a leap of faith. We have read it and you know <laughs> gone back and forth and and your latest suggestion i liked so it's gonna happen it's gonna happen okay very good we've in recent weeks you know talked about certain things outside of just the um the uh scripts that we've had for the week and kind of pulled them in or mentioned them but um now I'm not sure where I was going with that. Well, did you think that you wanted to talk about all five pieces this week and maybe not talk about every a bit of uh, the big news that we didn't cover? <laughs> what big news that we didn't cover? Uh, well, I mean, whatever, the, whatever we're, you know, last week we covered uh, abortion, but not guns. And there's right. always something, it was always something we don't cover. I mean, we, you know. You know, limited time, limited space. One of the things that I uh, saw this week, and I didn't get a chance to actually look at the, the poll, but supposedly there's a poll out that says 52% of Americans think the Justice Department should prosecute Donald Trump uh, for his role in, in trying to you know, create an insurrection and, and block the last election. And as we have talked about before, we share a uh, disdain, disappointment uh, at how Donald Trump acted post-election. And, and it, the truth is it doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't revolve around whether he is culpable in some legal way for what happened on January 6th, for me, it is so essential that, uh, that a president hands back power. And we talked, I think it was last week, we talked some about this, or, or sometime recently, it seems like we did, that, that Washington did more for the country by handing back power after two terms in terms of a lasting impact on real world governance uh, than perhaps anything else he did. Uh, so it, it's so important. And, and of course, Mr. Trump's uh, temperament uh, doesn't appear to have been the same temperament that Washington had, uh, which is too bad. But, uh, but I did find that interesting because I have thought about writing something suggesting that they should prosecute Donald Trump as opposed to prosecuting him in the court of public opinion through Congress. And, and, and part of the reason is in a court of law, there are certain rules. In Congress, increasingly, there are no rules. 
And this week, uh, and I'm going to forget her name, Hutchinson is her last name. Uh, I forget her first name uh, because I, uh, it's only been said on the radio and on television and in the newspapers four billion times. But the woman who testified this week talking about what she had heard, which, of course, in a court of law would immediately be shut down as hearsay. And people might might hear this and think, well, but there's a lot of stuff out there. Well, then then let's bring it forward. But it's it's not just important if you personally want to defend Donald Trump. If you're a partisan Republican, if you're a Trump supporter and you want to defend him, hey, let's let's give him the rules. If you're on the other side, it's a Pyrrhic victory to slam him without any rules to play up different things that are just hearsay. Because at the end of the day, people, even if they don't always get it right away, because, you know, some of us are busy, um, we eventually do get it. And if you have a, a whole, you know, indictment or list of different things that Donald Trump did, did wrong, but when you bring it forward, people say, yes, but, but that was in a forum where he had no ability, even Republicans had almost zero ability to impact that. He didn't get to question the people who were making charges against him. It's important that the process engender some respect among the public. Or in the end, you may, you may slam one person or another, but you leave lasting animosity lasting feelings of you can't get a fair shot the media runs with things like this i've i've uh, you know in the in the evenings when i'm working and i've been out of town and in a hotel you know i'm flipping around uh, when i can between msnbc and cnn and fox and you know i haven't heard anything about it being hearsay which it clearly is at least much of the testimony uh, that she gave. And we should probably uh, figure out what her name is, but. Her name was Cassidy Hutchinson? Yes, there you go. And what did she say? Is this the lady Wait. who accused him of taking over the car and all that kind of stuff? Yes, yes. Which seems to be physically not, not quite possible. I mean, it's not like the president's sitting in between two people in the front seat. So uh, it just, it, it kind of boggles the mind. But, but, you know, maybe he did. The problem is there's nobody who was there who has verified this. She's only saying what somebody else told her, which is the very definition of hearsay. And, uh, and, and yet you don't hear that on, uh, on MSNBC and CNN. You do hear it on Fox. And of course, I suspect if it was information that made uh, Trump look bad, you'd hear it on CNN and MSNBC and you wouldn't hear it on Fox. And it creates, as it should, a view among the public that you can't believe anything you hear, that uh, I might as well stick to my position because what I'm hearing that makes me question it, I question because I can't trust these people. And the truth is, uh, most of us who are who are a little bit savvy and not hyperpartisan, we don't trust any of them, which unfortunately doesn't make it that much easier.
but um, but anyway, that's that was kind of I think the big news of the week. And why not uh, pop this boil by bringing charges? And of course, if you you know it 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 doesn't make sense uh, to bring charges after you've had all these different things and you're trying to in essence sway the jury. Uh, and of course, you know, in this particular case with Mr. Trump, there are places in this country like Washington, D.C., that I'm not sure he can get a fair trial. And there are other places in this country that if you were to bring charges, the government couldn't get a fair trial or those prosecuting Mr. Trump couldn't get a fair trial. And that's a problem. Uh, it's it it. You know, we, we have a, a, a very uh, split country, even though if you were to look on all kinds of issues, we're not so split. We have been purposely split by, by those in power. Yeah, it's a little more complicated than that, in a sense, because there are differing ideas and they've just been festering as the parties have gone more partisan, right? Uh, it's interesting how ideological we are, the parties are today compared to where when, when we were born. There were liberal Republicans galore when we were born, and there were conservative Democrats when we were born. Now that kind of thing just doesn't exist, and that has its own special dynamic. But I just think that both sides are driving each other crazy, and that means that they're crazy. I mean, when we say driving each other crazy, that has consequences. One of them is they're crazy. <laughs> right. Well, uh, but... You also have, like, like, look at the abortion issue. If, if you watch television, there are pro-life people who believe that no matter rape, incest, life of the mother, doesn't matter, they want no abortions. Uh, and then there are pro-choice people uh, who, no matter what, want abortion up until the moment of birth. And as we joked the other day, uh, in some cases, like with the governor, former governor Northam in, in uh, Virginia, even if they were born, there might be a discussion about whether we let them live or not. Um, and the truth is, that's not where the country is either place. Those are the polls and those are what get to talk on television. And the people who think well, after 15 weeks or after the second trimester, those folks don't have much of a voice on TV. And yet that's where a lot of the public is. And, and here's, here's another, not abortion related, but uh, you, could, you could look at, at the gun issue. You could look at different issues that the Supreme Court has decided. And of course, you could look at Roe v. Wade 50 years ago that had an awful lot of people upset. But 50 years ago, you did not hear Republicans, they thought it was a totally illegitimate, uh, you know, at least the pro-life ones, totally illegitimate decision. And yet you didn't hear them talk about court packing. It has gotten to a point now where re ridiculously draconian, destructive solutions are being offered because what can you do? The other side cheated. Therefore, we need to do something dramatic that that gives us power. Um, and you know, it, it sort of reminds me of uh, you know we we point out some of the different uh, thoughts of the day. And uh, this week we had one by Stanley Kubrick. 
never, ever go near power. Don't become friends with anyone who has real power. It's dangerous. I get kind of a kick out of that, but there's some, there's some real truth there that power is the problem. Um, and you can't make it all go away, but we need things that restrain that power. And the idea of court packing is so horrifying to me because when one side packs the court, then the court is illegitimate. But then, of course, the other side comes in and they're unlikely to say, hey, let's go back to, to a neutral situation. They're likely to pack the court their way. And then our Supreme Court, which, look, uh, you know, term limits was struck down. I don't think it should be. I hope they'll revisit that and maybe overturn that decision. And it's not, you know, look, the, uh, the, a lot of the civil rights decisions overturned previous decisions that had been on the books for decades. And that's a good thing. I think. And, uh, and so, you know, on, on all of that, we have the danger of losing what is so unique about America. Most of the countries in the world, when you hear the Supreme Court has decided something, that is the hand-picked, controlled, you know, court of the politically powerful deciding something. And you know how they're going to decide it. They're going to decide it the way the government wants them to decide it. And, and, and so, uh, you know, we do have decisions that cut against the majority party. And, and I think, you know, I, I don't think the federal courts are, you know, perfect, uh, far, far, far from it. But there is a level of independence that I don't think you see around the world in, in courts. And, uh, and I think we should recognize that and protect it. So that's, that's, uh, you know, I think that, that it, it connects with everything that's going on in Washington, that there's constantly, not just this dysfunction, which I don't think, I think if you took a hundred liberals and a hundred conservatives or several hundred people from all walks of life, randomly suggest, selected and put them in a room there'd be incredible agreement on things. Uh, and yet, and not that they'd agree on everything, but, but there'd, there'd also be looking for compromise. And yet I think on all kinds of issues, abortion's a good one. There isn't compromise because the fight is working for both sides. Immigration, <clears throat> I think is another issue that the right likes where it is because it's an issue that, that gets people energized into the polls to vote for them. And the left likes where it is because it gets people energized and going to the polls to, to vote for them. Um, and so a solution where it's not an issue anymore is in, I think, the American people's interest, but not so much in, in our elected officials, our representatives who are representing themselves. What you described seems to me the political version of the feud or the vendetta, where the two sides are at war and they just do what's one-upping each other forever, right? And they, they're hysterical and they just become more hysterical and more murderous over time. And the very function of government, as I understand it, uh, you know, the state of, of having a monopoly government uh, is to suppress the vendetta. That's what even you know kings and warlords right. do is suppress the vendetta. 
Well, we don't have that now. I think that they're actually it's it's getting to the place where the politics of political vendettas is now bleaching over, reaching it's over into it's facilitating a vendetta, and in fact, a, a general one in society. That's what I'm saying. Is it? Doesn't it seem like it was yeah. more like that now? I think that's what we've seen with social media, and and uh, you know we hear all kinds of complaints about social media and the way people behave on the internet and 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 so on, but. I think that one of the worst aspects is that it has created a political dysfunction that seemed to be pretty much localized in Washington, D.C., has now been weaponized and is everywhere. Uh, and, and we had a piece this week that, that uh, talks about that vendetta cancel culture, a law firm, this recent gun case, uh, Paul Clement and, and uh, his partner who won this before the U.S. Supreme Court. So here you're in a law firm. The name of the piece is Not Tired of Winning. But here you are, you joined, Clement joined this law firm, and part of the agreement in him joining the firm was that he could continue to service his clients uh, on gun issues because that was one of the key issues he was working on. And had some important clients, obviously, because he had a case that went to the Supreme Court and he won it. Usually when you win a case at the U.S. Supreme Court, you are golden at your firm. This firm let him go. That's how political this firm is. And they're not alone. This isn't any shock to anybody. Um, we are beginning to have everything from law firms to social media to, you know, Coca-Cola uh, and Major League Baseball and the NBA. It's all being fought on political grounds. And that that seems like a big, big mistake. We also this week, I thought there was an interesting piece where Bill Barr had given a speech about uh, the hostility toward uh, religion, Christianity, but all religion, the Judeo-Christian underpinnings of our society, and pointed out how hostile the public schools are to that and suggested that we need some sort of school choice so that there isn't a monopoly. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of people... uh, Prayer in school is very popular. If you were to hold an election, it would win. They would mandate prayer in school. I don't think it's a good idea because I don't think you spread those concepts by forcing them on people. And and uh, and yet we see most people agree with that. And yet we see all kinds of things being forced down folks' throat on uh, on on religion, on other things. We had a, a, a case, uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision that came down about the, the coach who was kneeling and praying at, uh, after a game at midfield and was disciplined by the school. And the court came down and basically said, he's not, you know, he's not, you know, recognizing religion in any official way. He has his own First Amendment rights to pray. Um, and, and wasn't, you know, forcing anybody else to do it. And, and you can quibble about these cases, 
but I think that it's pretty clear that there is, you know, Hollywood has a huge bias against religion. Uh, almost rare that there's ever a movie uh, that is kind of pro-religion. And it's more than that. It's that almost every, I mean, there was once upon a time in the 40s, 30s, where you would never see a Catholic priest or a preacher in a movie being a jerk and a bad guy. And these days, the best you can hope for is that they're just mocked and ridiculed and not the worst people ever to, to live on the planet. And look, people are free, should be, to believe what they want to be believe, to go to whatever movies they want to go to or not. Uh, Hollywood's free to make whatever movies they want to make. But the public schools are taxing us all to pay for them. They don't have that right. And frankly, there's enough difference in society. And then as we point out in this piece, target government schools, uh, libertarians have been talking about this for a long time, that the differences that people have requires us to offer choices in education because you can't teach different subjects without any moral or philosophical viewpoint. And, and you know, people kind of poo-pooed that. I think more and more people are realizing it. And again, it's not just the conservatives who want religion in the schools. It is parents across the board, liberal parents, upset that critical race theory or it's, you know, it's anti-racist racism is being pushed on on their kids and they don't like it. And it's and it's forcing out not only different choices, but it's forcing out education, which is kind of the idea. Um, and of course, uh, there our piece that we will put out tomorrow after Recall Revival offers a bit of hope because the people of San Francisco recalled three not only their, their AG, which we also talked about, but uh, not in this piece, but in, in a previous one, but they, they recalled three of their seven uh, school board members. And one of the things that that previous school board had done was to make a uh, school that was merit-based, you know, one of these magnet schools that you have to take a test and the highest achievers go to that school uh, it was changed to where it was a lottery system. And you have to get lucky, I guess, to be able to go to that school. I think merit beats luck. And funny, after the voters of San Francisco, not a conservative bastion, but a very liberal place, after the voters recalled those three folks, the vote was four to three to go back to a merit-based system. So there is hope. There is hope in all kinds of places, even San Francisco. And, uh, but it does oftentimes take political action. And the truth is in San Francisco, if those, if those three recalls are the last political activity that, that parents get involved in, it's likely to slide right back to where it was. I mean, four to three is not exactly an overwhelming vote. Uh, so we have to stay engaged and involved. But there is a difference between those two pieces. Uh, 
Barr was saying that we have to give up, basically give up on the public schools as such. We have to have school choice that allow people to basically go out in private and community markets and do all sorts of different things. Whereas your Friday piece will be talking about how a normal school board and its uh, citizens changed back to what was the old normal until, you know, five minutes ago. Uh, the old normal was meritocracy in the progressive style, whereas right. the new idea is a subversive race-based, it's, 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 it's part of the whole cosmic justice socialism idea. The idea right. that the, the purpose of government is to make everything equal or make, remake the world completely every generation, every year, whatever they can do, because it's so deeply unjust the warp and woof of reality is deeply unjust. Whereas most people just think that, you know, let's get people doing what they want to do and do what they do best. So if they go to a magnet school, that's because they, you know, that they're attractive to magnets. That is that they have the intelligence, they have the interest, they have the skills and they have the dedication. Whereas normal and kids. And the dedication is important. So often we think about the talent and the, oh, they're so smart, but it's the work that folks put in that has a lot to do with folks' success in school and in life. It's not all talent. So that leaves us with, throw that in. well, it's a good idea. Yeah. People forget that sometimes, especially when they think that everything should be decided. If government can do all the work, then they don't have to, I guess. Those pieces are not mutually exclusive though, in the sense that I think that the more engaged parents are in schools, the better the public schools will be. But I also think the more parents will realize, you know what, one size does not fit all. And maybe part of the problem is that even if we change the schools to where instead of pleasing 14.3% of the public, they please 52% of the public, that's not good enough. And when you give people choice, Everybody might not be pleased, but if they're not pleased, it's their own fault and they can make a new choice and have a better, a better outcome down the road. I know that right now, uh, looking at young people and their success in business and so forth after schooling, uh, it's rather like COVID. Now, this will be a little stretch here. So let's see. If, <laughs> let's see if this would work. As soon as you said that, I thought this is going to be a stretch. <laughs> this is going to be a stretch. <laughs> rather, rather like the story in the limousine with a truck. It's going to be a stretch. Uh, but here's the deal is that most of the kids that I know who are really being successful uh, and getting into uh, employment and doing well right after school are homeschool kids. Uh, the homeschool it's just amazing the success that homeschool kids are having in our society. And it's not talked about very often, but I know a lot of businesses uh, that really like homeschooled students that is former homeschooled students uh, because my late sister, she she was a manager in a business. She thought that the, she, she, she loathed almost all young people. She couldn't stand them anymore. The only ones worth anything were the, were they the either homeschool kids or college people in college who are taking the summer off to work. Every other kid was lack, lackadaisical and not worth anything. In the, this is a, an amazing thing for somebody to say. So, and, and I just mentioned that's, that's my experience is that in, in the circuits that I vet, that I see, that right. I uh, have contact with, the successes of homeschooled and uh, very self-driven people, young people, is 
outweighs just a normal run of the mill by a long shot. And just the same way, uh, the most COVID cases I know are about people who've gotten uh, vaccines. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to applaud that. <laughs> that was <laughs> it's a complete has nothing to do with each other, but it is a, it is the case that I know a lot of people have gotten uh, COVID recently, and most of them had vaccines and boosters. Uh, well, you so, know they they haven't quite come out and and admitted that the vaccine is not what it was sold to be, but but you know it. But I want to jump back to homeschoolers because I'm a big fan of homeschools. Kids you did and, some of it in your family, is that not correct? Yes, we did. My, my kids were homeschooled. Uh, and and uh, my oldest uh, and my middle uh, kid both went early on to uh, private school, not public school, but a private school. Um, and and so, you know, but but we're homeschooled for most of it. And and since my wife did about 98 percent of the actual hard work of, of homeschooling, uh, you know, I don't, I don't take too much credit, uh, but it, one of the things that I've noticed is that, you know, with all the talk of socialization that somehow like when we were at one, uh, banquet one time and my wife was talking to somebody and, and this was someone who was, you know, becoming a teacher. And she said, well, aren't you afraid that they won't get the socialization? And my wife didn't skip a bit, didn't skip a beat, and said, "That's the part we don't want." And uh, and there is a certain socialization. There is, uh, and and some of it is designed by you know the NEA and the Department of Education in DC and all kinds of different folks involved in education. But the other part of it is this idea that. They should be around folks their exact same age, you know, as close as can within a year uh, all the time. And homeschooled kids spend more time out in the world has been my experience. They're not all sitting at home reading a book all the time. They're going to museums. They're going different places and they interact with all kinds of people of different ages, including a lot more adults. And so they, they, you know, go into the workforce and it's not the first time they've ever had to deal with somebody who's not their same age. And I don't want to overstate that. Obviously you can, you know, I went to public schools and then, you know, a, a year or two of college and, and, uh, and I certainly dealt with a lot of people who were not my same age, but I think that's a lot of it is that the socialization is much different. And I think it's actually much more varied uh, for homeschool kids than it is for kids going to going to school with all those people around the socialization in terms of meeting different people from different walks of life is happening more with the homeschool kids than it's happening with the, the public school or private school kids. Yeah, I developed a whole theory about socialization when I was uh, in my 20s about the difference between what goes on in public schools or schools in general, actually, compared to what goes on in normal life. And uh, what's interesting is that in normal life, there's a lot more one-on-one -on -one and small group interactions, whereas in schools, you have large groups of people, and that tends to tribalism. So that has a whole different kind of experience. So I, I, I don't like clicks. I don't like that kind of stuff bothers me. So... 
Yeah, it, it is an institutional setting. And, and I, I think generally those aren't the best settings. So yeah. it's. Well, you have two other pieces this week. Uh, one is pushing past protest, which I like saying, pushing past protest. And that looks like it was on the beginning of the week. And that was basically talking about, uh, is it? Uh, uh, Jane's Revenge. Jane's Revenge. I, I was, I, I wasn't sure. Uh, and, and this is a group that hasn't, you know, it's not like they've been convicted of all kinds of violent actions, but they say that's what they're about. They're about disrupting and destroying and threatening and intimidating. And that's got to be called out at all levels from all political perspectives. And so that's what that piece was all about, pushing past protest, very uh, alliterative. And then the other piece, which I think is, is uh, an important piece, it's big oil, big profits, big deal. And it's Joe Biden, and he's not the the only one. We mentioned Reagan when he was still a a Democrat, had said some things about, you know, big corporations and and so on, and making huge profits. Profits are a good thing. For one, we don't mention this specifically in the piece, but if if you're working for a business that doesn't make a profit, you're not going to be working for them very long because they're going to go out of business. And we point out in this piece that, you know, the the price that, you know, the the profits that big oil is making right now are one after they suffered through the pandemic, but they're also, they're not only to make up what they suffered through the pandemic, they're really much more about encouraging the the uh, reintegration of society the you know in other words now we need to find the oil and get the refining capacity and do all kinds of things that were in trouble because there wasn't the demand now there's the demand when there's a lot of demand and there's not supply and for for reasons that that aren't gee Somebody at ExxonMobil woke up and decided, I want to destroy the economy. I mean, if, if they're all just power hungry, profits at all costs, well, they would have raised the price for everything a long time ago. It's obvious why the prices, and, and it isn't always obvious, but I think it is in this case, that, uh, that you know, there is a huge demand and there's a limited supply. So the prices are going to go up. And profits are going to be there. And those profits allow businesses to then go do the R&D or whatever it is to bring more of the supply to the market. And when that happens, then for all their work, prices come down because they've, they've had the supply. And all we hear is demagoguery on this. And it's important that people push back on that. It's easy to say big oil and, oh, they're terrible and so on. And we have people like Joe Biden, who you have to think knows better, but is, of course, a politician. So he's going to tell whatever lie kind of works for him. But it's it's silly at this point, because anybody who looks very hard at this, and I encourage people to go to this piece, big oil, big profits, 
big deal uh, and and hit some of the links and and if you're if you're not sure whether I'm right or Joe Biden's right, look into it a little bit because he doesn't have a fig leaf uh, to to hide any of his just absolute demagoguery on it. And he's not the first. It's not even original demagoguery. It's worn out demagoguery. Well, right at that moment, I see by the time clock that we've almost worn out our welcome. Uh, so just a few minutes away from the end. Uh, do you want to wrap up the week with uh, some brilliant thought? I'm, I'm hoping, well, I'm hoping I'm cheering you on. <laughs> I didn't have any brilliant thoughts. I put them all down on, on paper earlier in the week. I'll, I'll give you one. It's not a brilliant thought, but uh, this is a book that I've been reading this week. Paul's holding up the final struggle inside China's global strategy. It's by Ian Easton, and he's with the 2049 Project, which is looking at Asia. China has kind of said that they're going to, you know, be the dominant force in Asia by 2049. And if I heard that Taiwan or Japan or South Korea was going to be the dominant force in Asia by 2049, I wouldn't be reading a book probably about it, but we'll, I'll probably be writing about that going forward because this is one of the best books I've, I've read yet, looking at what Xi Jinping and the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, has actually said about what they're trying to do. And they are trying to usher in the Chinese totalitarian century. And Americans have been largely asleep at the switch until very recently. Well, there we are. This week in Common Sense for the last week of June and the first day of July, 2022. And have a uh, happy Independence Day, everybody. Very good. <laughs>